0: Welcome to 1202, the Human Factors Podcast. The podcast that covers all things about humans, technology Technology. and particularly the bits in between.
1: And welcome to this episode of 1202 where we're going to be looking at the rewards and the perils of authoring Human Factors books. But before we get into that, a quick reminder that whilst you're listening or watching this episode, I'm really keen for you to let us know what you think of of the topic or any of the comments that are made within it or any other pertinent thoughts, and for you to leave your thoughts in the comments of whichever platform you're listening to us through. We do try and go through them all and and respond, and generally I'm quite on the ball with that, so um, I'm really, really great to have a discussion. But it depends also what, what it is that you want to talk about. If it can be something quite serious, like, so we had a lot of comments on the application of human factors in healthcare, um, as exemplified with the, in the episode with Peter Brennan recently, or if you just got a really good joke. So David Golightly in his recent interview kicked off a, a stream of, um, of railway jokes. And so without further ado, we will go full steam ahead and however it happens, getting your thoughts and ideas and feedback is really, really brilliant for us and helps us move forward as a channel. But it's fair to say that in my career, I have on more than one occasion used the term standing on the shoulders of giants. And in many cases, those giants are the people who've taken the time and the consideration to put what they've done, their experiences, their methods, and their understanding of how our industry works into a book. And that book allows the rest of us to learn from what they've done. Without these books, many practitioners would struggle on a day-to-day basis to achieve the consistence of approach and the agility in being able to flex methods to differing uh, and suitable situations. So I'm really pleased that one of those giants has been kind, to join enough to, to, kind enough to join us today, and that is Bob Bridger. He's the past president of the CIHF and author of a number of books, the most recent being Introduction to Human Factors in Accident Investigation, but has a number of books also aimed at those starting out on their human factors journey, a number of which still sit on my own bookshelf and I use regularly. So welcome, Bob, and thank you very much for joining us today.
2: Hi, everyone. Hi, Barry. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks.
1: So before we get into this idea of, um, of how you know, authoring a, a human factors book and the sort of things we need to get involved, yeah. it'd be really fantastic to learn a bit more about you. I mean, I don't know who doesn't know about you, but, um, but in terms of what you're doing currently, um, what are you doing on a day-to-day basis?
2: Well, that's interesting, Barry. Nowadays, I'm, I'm self-employed through my own company. So, um, I, I basically, I do work when it comes in um, on a, a task and finish basis. Um, so, you could say that I'm coin-operated, basically. <laughs> um, you know, clear deadlines, clear, clear number of days, clear deliverable, um, 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 and um, that's it. You pay the money, you get the deliverable. That's as simple as that. And that suits me. I've, I've, I've had the pleasure over the last couple of years of working with the Health Safety Investigation Branch, assisting them with accident investigations, or not, mm-hmm. not accident investigations, investigations of safety occurrences. Right, so, And that's been great. They're wonderful people. I really enjoy working with them. And one of the reasons I've enjoyed it so much is because my first job when I left school was an operating theatre assistant in a Croydon General Hospital. So okay. I was one of those people dressed in green pyjamas with a hat on and um, cream-coloured wellies, pushing a trolley around, collecting patients, taking them into theatre and doing all the dirty jobs like hanging up the swabs covered in blood so they could do um, swab counts and taking out the amputated legs to the incinerator, and all of that business. So it was really nice towards when I'm coming towards the end of my career to um, start working in, in hospitals again and visiting hospitals and seeing what's changed and what hasn't and, um, and just working with a great bunch of people. I've done some other jobs as well that are interesting, one of which is um, helping companies that have to get protocols through the Ministry of Defence Research Ethics Committee. And um, as an ex-member of the Royal Navy Scientific Advisory Committee, I reviewed, uh, re- reviewed over 500 protocols in all areas of human sciences. I kind of know my way around that process and um, I can um, I can give them a leg up quickly um, yeah. and get, get them through um i've also done some presentations and um courses and that kind of thing which we can talk a little bit about later on um at the moment <clears throat> i'm very much a self-employed layabout because i'm waiting to hear on about a um a fast boat project that i've um, agreed to support but as you know what it is with some of these with some of these work it's we're very much in hurry up and wait mode yeah yeah no. uh, okay no, it's not ready yet. No, they haven't decided yet. No, we'll let you know. But OK, that's fine. So at the moment, I'm having a wonderful time. Um, i go to gym three times a week, play tennis three times a week, um, go for a cycle ride in the country if the weather's nice. Um, I annoy everyone by plugging my books on social media and on the community forum. Um, sometimes with success, you know, people actually do buy them after I do that. Um, And the other thing that I've been doing, which some of your viewers might be interested in, is I've got a a, a fitness trainer's qualification, and I've been helping out um, some older people uh, with sarcopenia. Um, What's that? It's loss of muscle mass with age, but a lot of it is deconditioning. Um, Right, okay. If you read the literature, or my reading of the literature suggests that from about the age of 25 or 30 onwards, if you don't work in a physically demanding job and if you don't do strength training or sports like judo or boxing um you lose about 1% of your muscle mass every year so by the time you get to about 60 65 you've lost probably 20 or more percent or more of your muscle mass but you won't weigh less will you you'll weigh more hence the feeling that people often feel that they're right. slowing down with age because they've got less muscle to move a heavier body yeah yeah so the people who I've been helping are, are basically quite fit and healthy in their 60s and 70s and they um they play tennis many doubles because they don't like running um (laughs) but they also uh, do things like pilates um Mm -hmm. good diets you know they're not obese um some of them are overweight but none of them are obese they're always quite healthy healthy people but they've noticed that this loss of strength is beginning to affect their ability to participate in activities of daily living
3: Mm -hmm. you
2: like opening jars and um, lifting up that bag of compost in the in the um in, in the nursery or lifting suitcases in and out of cars. And um, so I've been helping them out with strength training and it is very interesting when you, when, when I assess them, I do find in fact that in some respects the loss of strength is remarkable. Right. Okay. They just cannot do simple things that they would have been able to easily when they were 30, 35 yeah. it's yeah. because of inactivity. And the other thing that's really interesting for me um is that even though they're quite health conscious people none of them got any idea how to do strength training and they've never done it before right and one of the interesting things about that is that public health england guidance says you should do 150 minutes of moderate intensity exercise every week that's your cardio if you like to use modern terminology so go for a brisk walk for half an hour five times a week and the other thing is um they recommend two days of strength training, um, but most people have got no idea how to do that mm. and what i 'm finding that 's absolutely very interesting is is once I introduce these people and get them going in a very a short balanced program is you know, they come back to me after about a week or two weeks, and they said they love it okay because they they get an improvement in muscle tone that lasts for a few days, then when it goes away, they want to go back in and do some more because they want it back, yeah. Um, yes. One lady said to me that it was uh, because after I trained out to do squats and deadlifts, not with heavy weights, but very modest weights, <laughs> <words. Yes. laughs> you know. <laughs> um, she said her back pain is gone. She doesn't get backache anymore.
3: Right, okay. Yeah. Which
2: doesn't surprise me um, because they're both very, very good exercises for core stability and a lot of other things. And this is uh, this really interested me because, um, yeah, these are people more or less of my age or a bit older than me. Uh, and when we were young, exercise was more or less equated with running.
3: Right.
2: You know, yeah. if you said, it said to them, oh, you know, 40 years ago, you said to someone, you need to get some more exercise or go for a run. Um, if I'd have turned around to them 40 years ago and said, and someone said, you need to get some more exercise, and I, if i had said to them, oh, get in the gym and do dead deadlift squats and bench presses, they'd have looked at you as if you were insane. Mm, yeah. But nowadays, you know, if you go to my sports club and you go in the gym, <clears throat> the weights room is packed with generation z yeah <clears throat> youngsters 18 25 they all do weights and all the old duffers are on the cross trainers and, and treadmills and that and um, either that, and the other thing that's interesting is lots of young women doing weight training nowadays which you'd never used to see years ago yeah yes uh, they either do that or they do or they do calisthenics i don't know much about calisthenics but what i've seen is it's also very 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 good and yeah, you highly recommended So we have a real interesting generation shift going on here. Um, So
1: presumably that's down to a better understanding of the science as much as anything else as well. You know, like I say, it used to be just go and do, go and do running, but now it's, there's a lot more knowledge and understanding about how our body works and how to get the most out of what you're doing.
2: Well, there is, and there's a lot more evidence uh, that has come up over the last 10 years, at least on the, um, um, the effects of sarcopenia on uh, longevity right I mean, basically um sarcopenia is just one of these general risk factors for reducing your lifespan you know like other things like high blood pressure or cardiac mm-hmm. insufficiency all that kind of thing and i think that's that's what lies behind public health England's current guidance of trying to get people to do a, a more strength training um, okay. so that's it's very interesting and it does lead on to um some of the things that i i'm going to be working on soon um, um because uh, you know as i explained <clears throat> i i don't um work full-time I only work part-time and only do work when it comes in but okay. i've got um which is great by the way because <laughs> it's, it's normally the real bonus It's work that i normally enjoy doing you know, yes. like with HSIB, it's great fun but um, um i'm doing um a couple of articles for safety management magazine and the first one is on hybrid working and maintaining health. Mm-hmm. And the emphasis is on physical health. Um, I might um, take a look at mental health in another article um, early next year. But at the moment, the emphasis on physical health. And I'm going to be talking a bit more detail about um, hybrid working and maintaining health with hybrid, work, hybrid working. And I'm going to talk a bit more about strength training as well. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm um and that's so that should be out i think in august in safety management magazine
3: oh, well,
1: um, so you said that they're part, you know, um, partially retired or retired you're keeping yourself um very active i oh, sense I yeah. sense of sitting around just just doing nothing actually doesn't live in your repertoire
2: well um having having read the literature on um, um health nutrition exercise and longevity um, I've got a vested interest in doing it. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. But the other reason is, uh, I actually, I like exercise. I mean, yeah. um, um, just on a personal note, as a, as a young man, I had a very dissolute lifestyle. I never did any exercise at all. Smoked twenty six c- c- cigarettes a day. I was in the pub every night. Uh, younger listeners might be surprised to know that when I was at university, we had ashtrays in the lecture theatres. Right, okay. It, it was considered polite to smoke, you know, it showed yes. you were listening. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, but any anyway, once i converted to exercising um regularly um um the, the benefits are just obvious yeah know? yeah and you just feel so much better eventually you get to the point where if you stop exercising you just don't feel as good and you miss that feeling of being i mean i went to the gym this morning um for about 40 minutes and um and had a workout and yeah i feel great um I've got no post-lunch dip, no tiredness, um, you know, fully alert and, you know, definitely ready to have a walk down to the um, the club for a pint later on. Um, but um, the next article that's going to come up for Safety Management Magazine is going to be about human factors in accident investigation. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we've got lots of colleagues, haven't we, in the Institute who have, um, some have moved from university to work for places like the Rail Accident Investigation Branch and places like that. yeah. Um, yeah. It's a real it's a real growth area. I was looking on LinkedIn uh, today and I saw that um, Nora over in Ireland is advertising another fantastic job um, with the Irish Railways um, on, um, uh, you know, with a big emphasis, I think, on, on safety. Um, it really makes me wish sometimes I was 10 years, 15 years younger. I'd definitely go and work for one of those organisations in human fashion <coughs> safety. I think it's really fantastic career opportunities and really interesting work.
1: Yeah, I think you're right. I, I interviewed Nora the other day, and this um, her episode should should have come out just before this one, um, where she talks about the breadth of work that she does, and it's it's something that I've never got involved with yet. Um, but the more I read, so I've um, you know you, you listen to colleagues, you re- read the literature, you read, except like um, got your uh, latest book, which which we've read as a as an introduction and, and things, and it does make you think that whole investigative piece, that whole looking at it, looking at almost tragic events but through that human factors lens is is absolutely fascinating
2: well it is and i think one of the reasons why organizations are employing human factors um, experts in accident investigation or investigating safety occurrences to speak you know more generally Mm -hmm. is because you know we naturally take a systems approach yes and have done for 50 years you know it's just in our blood that's what we do we look at things toward angles we're multidisciplinary. we can see things from a physiological point of view and anatomical point of view and a psychological point of view and a bit from an engineering and process point of view as well yeah. so we've got um sort of automatically keyed in to look at things very widely and i think that, that that's part of the value that we add so anyway the article that i'm writing next on on this is, is basically i'll be honest it's just a teaser for my book <laughs> <laughs> Um, it's see, quite,
1: you're very good at pushing the um um uh, pushing the the, the the literature that you've been doing out on, on social media so hopefully no and we will put some links to the uh to the different bits in in the description of this but you're quite right there is a, there's a lot out there about what, what you've achieved
2: yes please well I'll, I'll be talking about the pros and cons of writing hh books a little bit later won't we so yes but we can talk about that that we'll come back to that one i think but yeah. um so but no,
1: sorry just to oh, you talked about you being um The young lad at university, uh, all that sort of stuff. How did you, how did you get involved in human factors in the first place? Was that your first love, or did you come into it, or so? How how did you find out that this such a thing existed?
2: Well, I was one of those people who was always quite good at a lot of things, but not particularly good at anything. So even though I really enjoyed physics, I did A level physics, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and even I really enjoyed that, and I was quite good at it. I knew that I wasn't good enough to do a degree in it right okay and i liked biology as well uh, i thought it was interesting um i didn't really want to do it And at the same time i liked i thought history was really interesting as well and and english and writing so anyway i sort of made a i ended up working as a psychologist for a while and i realized that i was a rubbish psychologist <laughs> absolutely useless <laughs> in the sense of you know i don't understand why people think i lack empathy
3: right okay <laughs>
2: Because <laughs> you lack empathy, you moron, you know. So, I came across ergonomics, I thought, like multidisciplinary. I thought, I'm going to do that. Um, and so I did it. And I think I did the MSc in um, University College London. And the minute I started studying it, I knew I made the right decision. I never looked back for a second.
1: So you've touched upon some of the roles that you've had. Can you just give us a potted history of the career path from um, doing that MSc to um, basically working through your career, the different types of roles you've done?
2: Okay, well, after the MSC, I went out and I worked for the Chamber of Mines Research Organization in Johannesburg, where they were, um, they did all the um, acclimatization work for acclimatizing people to work underground in the gold mines. Okay. Um, really big on physiology. And um, I did work there on things like uh, noise and performance of hydraulic and pneumatic rock drills. Um, That was quite interesting. And I got a very good grounding in in noise, Um, (laughs) how to measure it. You Absolutely. know, doing things like third octave analysis, all that kind of thing. Uh, that was really good. Um, but after a while, I found that it was a bit boring. Um, and then uh, down in Cape Town, they would set up an um, ergonomics program in the in the biomedical engineering department. And the, <clears throat> there was a, a South African chap who I'd worked with in Johannesburg who'd retired from Loughborough. Um, he'd taken early retirement from Loughborough and gone back to South Africa to work um for the mining industry on contract for a year. That's where I met him. Then he moved down to Cape Town to set up the economics program. But he told them that he was only going to work for one year because he wanted to retire. He wanted to be like, you know, I am now, you know, mm. a bit of a layabout. But um, he, <laughs> so um, anyway, I got the job. So I ended up working in Cape Town, running the postgraduate program in economics. And we did a lot of things down there. Well, I did some a lot of my early work on seating, posture and seating and all of that kind of thing um did lots of consultancy for industry looking at um you know improving patient workstation designs you know preventing musculoskeletal disorders all the old hse stuff you know like manual handling risk assessments um yeah. did a lot of workshops and that kind of thing um, trained some lots of students many of that, many of the students were well, not many some of the students that i trained there in the 80s and 90s are still working in south africa as ergonomists some of them have got their own companies um, and I'm still a member of the, um, South African Ergonomics Society. Uh, okay. And, uh, they're, they they're, they've really set something up now. They've even managed to persuade the government to introduce economics legislation. That's the wow. labor. So, yeah, yeah so i um, very positive, um, developments, the way it's gone over the years. Um, then when I finished my own PhD at uh, Cape Town, I was looking for something to do and, um, a new challenge really because i was busy but i um, decided to write a textbook right <laughs> in those days you had loads of lecture notes you used to have to give to students so i just thought well i'm yeah. going to write them all up nicely in, in in slow time you know as a background task i hired a graphic artist to do all the artwork for me and the figures um most of those figures are still being used in the current book
3: mm. um because
2: cool. um, you know cartoons of lumber motion segments don't Get out of date range, out yeah, date. yeah. yeah they, they're there that's it <laughs> um and uh, then i got the book published and we could talk a bit more about that process yeah, yeah. Moment, but yeah. um <clears throat> then in 1999 i moved with a young family back to the uk um mainly because um for family reasons and because the south african rand had collapsed and the interest rate on my new mortgage had just gone up to 25 percent ouch yeah. so ouch <laughs> It was, you know, I just thought the next 10 years are going to be miserable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyway, I, I applied for the job at INM, Institute of Naval Medicine, and um, I got it and they gave me a relocation package as well. They relocated us, the whole family. Oh, yeah. So basically, basically, the Royal Navy threw me a life belt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then I, so I ended up down here, at um, down on the south coast working, working at INM. And and that was very good because it was um, the quality of life down here is, has always been excellent. You know, I had a short commuting time, I could commute to work and back in five minutes with no traffic. Um, so that enabled me to have time to do other things. Um, yeah. So I wasn't wasting time sitting in, tra- in traffic or in trains. So I was able to bring out new editions of my textbook and also do a bit of um, lecturing up, up for Peter Buckle and co up at Surrey I did a bit of lecturing for them over the years and that was good fun um and also helped me with my my book writing yeah. and then um 2018 i decided it was time to um do something new and so i um uh, left the institute and uh, wife and i set up a little company and she she's an events organizer and okay. do a bit of events and consulting and that's what we've been doing ever since um and i also in the interim period i i published um, a couple of books. Um, the other ones, A Guide to Active Work in the Modern Office, which we can talk about. That's one of the cons of writing books, by the way. <laughs> I'll tell you why in a minute. But um, <laughs> um, And I also had a... It, it was great timing because just before I was about to finish up at INM, the Institute contacted me about the presidential term. Mm-hmm, yeah. So two things happened on my last day of work at INM. I had... My first discussions about being starting three year term as president of CIHF. And I had my first meeting with HSIB to support them with an accident, uh, sorry, not an accident investigation, an investigation of a safety occurrence. Yeah. So it was like, you think to yourself sometimes, oh, I don't really believe in fates, you know, but sometimes you think, did I do that at the right time? Yeah. 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 Yeah, yeah I did. That makes sense.
1: That's really fascinating. Again, just see, seeing the the breadth of stuff you've, you've got up to and the opportunities that you've taken. But as you say, we're going to, talk, going to take a really quick break and then we're going to get back into talking around um, the, the the books that you've written in particular. So we'll be back right after this.
0: You are listening to 1202, the Human Factors Podcast. We wanted to take the opportunity to say thank you for your support. You can help further by rating us through your podcast provider, sharing us through social media, and telling your friends and colleagues. Let's work together in raising awareness of the value in putting users at the center of what we do.
1: And welcome back. And today we're talking with Bob Bridger about writing and publishing human factors books in particular. So Bob, you've already sort of alluded to it, but how did you get into authoring HF books? And really what 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 was that spark that sort of said you had that bun that that collection of of notes that said that you then took and said, I know, I'll publish a book. Um, and so I've got to be honest, it's not the first thing that comes to mind for me when I've got really done various bits. I mean, maybe it's just my wrong mindset, but what, what what made you feel like you had you could do that?
2: Well, I thought there was a gap in the market. Um, right. Because in those days, there were about three main textbooks, like general textbooks. Mm-hmm. I'm not talking about books like um, Steve Pheasant's books, which were really restricted to physical ergonomics. Mm-hmm. Excellent books in their time, by the way. I'm talking about general textbooks. So there was one, I think, called Human Factors in Engineering and Design by mccormick and sanders Mm -hmm. Um, and there was another one called occupational ergonomics by stephen cons and these books were in their like fifth sixth editions by the early 90s -90s. so they were actually written in the late 50s early 60s and very much they still had to me i didn't really use any of them but they still had the flavor of Sort of 1960s industrial engineering. Yeah, great if you're running a factory in the 1960s, got everything you need. Yeah. But it didn't really. And I also felt that um, <clears throat> they weren't very good on biomechanics. Right. And things like musculoskeletal disorders. And they weren't very good on psychology either. Um, <clears throat> particularly with all the, as as you, as you know, at that time, um there was a lot of emphasis on cognitive ergonomics and getting cognitive match between technology and human information processing and getting that fit right or matching machines to minds, as john long once said um and i felt that there was a a good um place in the market for a book that did that and i also looked at all my lecture notes that i'd had Mm -hmm. and they weren't anything like what you would find in any of the competitive volumes. Right, okay. So I just thought, okay, I'm gonna give it a go. Cool. So, and I did something that most authors never do. And I did, cause I didn't know any better. I'd never written any books before. So I just wrote the whole book, hired the artist to do the artwork and everything was ready. Contacted a publisher. Initially I, I wrote to um, Cambridge University Press in London and they asked for some um, um, sample materials and uh, I sent it off. Didn't hear anything for about three months. So I contacted McGraw-Hill in the US and um, they came back to me with about six weeks and said, yeah, we'll take it. And I um, so I told Cambridge University President, sorry, you, you, you've missed the boat mate. <laughs> and got a sort of an apologetic letter from them, which um, made some mention of the tardiness of their reviewers.
3: Um, right, okay.
2: <laughs> so anyway, I went with mcgraw Hill, and so that's how I got into it. Um, so, so for those of, you, those of you,
1: I've never been into that bit—that bit of writing a book, or uh, maybe you're just thinking about it. Or what is what's the process? What is it? Because right. you, you sort of went, you know, pen to paper, write the book, but you also know to that, you, that isn't necessarily the right way. So what, what 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 would a novice book writer be looking at in terms of process?
2: The process. Well, there's two aspects to that is there's firstly what's going on in your own head and secondly Mm -hmm. there's what the publisher is going to ask you to do the process that you'll have to engage in to get the book published so sometimes people ask speak to me and say you know i'd like to write an ergonomics book what advice can you give me and i say what's the title of your book and they say oh don't know and so i say well go away and think of a title right okay books without titles don't get written i don't know any books without titles that's true. Yeah. I've never seen one. <laughs> That's true. I've been to, been to many libraries. I've never seen a single book that hasn't got a title. So, you know, yeah. Um, I'd leave it at that with people who say they want to write books. But with the publisher, what you have to do is you first have to approach the publisher. The publisher send, then sends you a book proposal form. And in that book proposal form, you have to give the, t- the title of the book. Oh, surprise, yeah. surprise. A chapter list, some sample chapters, the names of any co-authors. You have to make a statement about that it's all original. You have to state what the competitor volumes to your book are. Mm -hmm. Okay, what's the competition? You have to say what kind of courses the book's going to be used on. Um, You have to give the approximate length and the number of illustrations, the number of tables and um, various other things. So in other words, it's quite a detailed form.
1: Quite solid plan by the
2: sounds of it. Yeah. Quite solid. So you have to make a case for it. Then what happens is the publisher sends it out to reviewers. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reviewers will be probably academics in universities um in the country where the publisher does most of its business or business business, which is very often the US. Right, okay. And they those academics will review it and give their opinions which may be favorable or unfavorable mm-hmm. um, and then you'll get that back and you'll have to respond in some way and if that's satisfactory then you'll be given a publication agreement and then what you have to do is that will give um, like the, um, the deadlines for delivering the manuscript all of the uh, legal stuff about copyright and so on um, it will state what your royalty is going to be and on which sales that royalty is applicable so okay. be very careful there
1: i was about to say how where does money fall into all of this how, how, how do you get paid
2: royalties um and you have to be very careful read the small print uh, the first publication agreement i was ever sent said you only got ro- you only got royalties on books sold in the u.s
1: right okay <laughs>
2: <laughs> so read read the small print yeah and um you'll be very disappointed when you see what royalty uh, figure they're going to give you but it's you know it's the same with most books it's not very high um it's not much um and some publishers nowadays you'd be lucky to get 10 percent.
1: really wow
2: okay um so now that's that's it with a textbook okay
3: Mm -hmm.
2: now a textbook is a book that you're intending to sell you're intending that university professors and lecturers will buy it and adopt it as a course text, and their students will buy it and right that's, okay. like, that's where the sales volume comes from
3: yeah
2: a <clears throat> few other people might buy it as well libraries will buy it and companies but basically you're going for the student market mm-hmm. and so if you're successful in getting the publication agreement that's when your nightmare really starts because <laughs> right. the publisher will say okay you've got to do um an instructor's manual What's that? to go with the book right okay so at the end of every chapter you've got to put in some questions preferably problems that have got have to be solved numerically mm-hmm. or in some other way. It could be essay topics, but basically you've got to put in some meaty questions there. Then you have to write a manual for the instructors that have got all the answers.
1: Right, okay, yeah.
2: Okay. Um, with Introduction to Human Factors and Ergonomics, fourth edition, um, which you all know about, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you get... Um, you get um, an instructor's manual, you get a guide to tutorials and seminars, you get over 500 PowerPoint slides and you get um, access um, to all the artwork electronically, but you only get any of those things if you're an academic at a university and you adopt it as a course text.
1: Right.
3: Okay. Yeah.
2: So in other words, you, Barry Kirby, couldn't phone up, um, CRC press and say, "Can I have a copy of Bob Bridges' instructor's manual, please?" Yeah, um, it's not available. Um, obviously, because they don't want they don't want students to get their hands on them.
3: Oh, to
1: a, yes, no, that makes sense.
2: Yes, that makes, <laughs> makes a lot of sense. Um, so that's for a textbook. <clears throat> um, so a lot of work. So human factors in ergonomics a fairly small market. So I I think it's true to say that I didn't really get any return on the investment on my first book for the first eight years
1: right okay wow
2: um then if you're lucky and you get it adopted as a course text on it starts selling then um you have to bring out a new edition um, right and that's easy that's a the,
1: refresh of what you've done yeah
2: yeah they, they basically they normally ask for 25 or 30 new material okay which in a field like ours is dead easy to put in
1: I could say it's evolving so quickly that I guess there's, there's always new stuff to, to play with.
2: Yeah, yeah, there's loads of it. And there's stuff, there's stuff that you've learned as you've gone along better ways of expressing things. And mm. I, like my new book on human factors and ergonomics, um, the textbook, it's got a new prologue on it, on human factors integration. Because I thought that outside of places like MOD and the, uh, the big industries like Atkins and Tharley's, most people don't have a clue about human factors integration.
1: Oh, no, that's true. That's that's you know, very true, actually. Yeah.
2: You know, I mean, the first time you go to a meeting of on one of those teams and human factors, it's almost like they're speaking a different language. <laughs> yes. It really? Is. So you've got you know you've got to talk you've got to know what a requirement specification is, you've got to know what human factors integration plan is. <clears throat> you've got to know what things like D logs are and
3: yes. yeah.
2: all of, all of that. So I yeah, you know, with the new book, I put in a new prologue on basically on HFI. Um you know how to write requirements. Yeah, <laughs> all, all that stuff. But you need so it's not just updating a book in terms of what's new in the literature; it's updating it on what's going on outside in the world that you're sending the students out to. Yeah. So um, the really difficult thing about updating a book, a textbook, is deciding what to delete.
1: Oh, so I guess your, the the total page count needs to be roughly similar. I'm guessing.
2: yeah. Uh, well, Mine's grown from about five hundred and thirty to about seven hundred and fifty pages, but a lot of that is because I've been been a bit sneaky and just putting lots of checklists and other stuff, um, which bulks it up. But it's deciding what to delete is really really yeah. difficult. Because,
3: because It must
1: feel like your it it it's your child in many ways, isn't it? It's your, you you it, you've got a, a vet almost a vested love interest in almost every single word you've written because you that's taken you pain and blood sweat and tears to 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 get it on there.
2: Well, in some ways, yeah. But the thing is, what what really worries me is if you delete something, um, it will be forgotten, and then someone will reinvent it.
1: Right. Okay. Yeah.
2: Yeah. <laughs> you, know, you look at a paper on in ergonomics that <laughs> published that of uh, something that was done, you know, forty years ago, but uh, is actually was actually well known, but was then forgotten.
1: Forgot- yes. Yeah.
2: <laughs> so the the trade off is between. Um, 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 allowing the book to become a museum on the one hand, yeah, and on the other hand, uh, which you don't want to do, and on the other hand, stuffing it full of new stuff that's going to go out of fashion in three years.
1: Yeah, so you can't. So that's where, I guess, a bigger difference between papers and uh, a book really comes into play, because papers, you know, are of the moment, they're generally cont- contemporary. Um, your book is something that you want to have some longevity to it. Absolutely,
2: uh, yeah, yeah. So um, that's basically textbooks. <laughs> Um, if you can crack it, I think it is worth doing. Uh, the third edition of, of my Introduction to Ergonomics that sold 13,000 copies worldwide. Wow. Which is not bad. <clears throat> and probably, I think, as a rule of thumb, they say for every book that's sold, because a lot of them go to libraries, about five people read it. Read it. So that's probably 60,000, 70,000 people have read it.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah.
2: Large parts of it.
1: And oh, that must give you a, a, a guess a- a really nice feeling inside actually being able to know that you've influenced um so many people in in something that you're passionate about
2: yeah i mean i had a, a really a real eye-opener because you know when you're the author you just normally get the sales figures mm, you don't really yeah. know much about who's buying it or using it and about I think about 10 years ago i went out to the philippines to do some lectures i was at this university and they took me to lunch with the dean and the professor from the Industrial Engineering Department, and I said, "Can you give us a short talk after lunch to the students?" And I said, "Yeah, okay." I was expecting there to be about ten or fifteen postgrads. I walked into this hall, and there were about two hundred people there. Wow! And these students there was physiotherapy, industrial engineering, occupational health, occupational medicine, and one or two others. uh, And all of these students, but they only had one copy of each edition of my book. Right? They were falling to bits. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah the pages were like yellow and f- because of so many people had read them wow. and um and people were really nice so it, that that was a real that was a real sanitary experience i, I enjoyed that um but um yeah so uh, there are a lot of advantages of, of writing textbooks but really um um you have to do if you're going to go down the textbook line it's a lot of work.
1: So it certainly it, sounds good to get that level of, um, you know, the amount of input in order to see any sort of return. Yeah. You mentioned earlier about um, the difference between publishing and self publishing because you've, oh, you're yeah. in your recent book. So uh, is this self publishing? Are you literally printing the paper and creating the book or is it, um, what, what is self publishing?
2: I'll, I'll tell you a story about that one. <laughs> um, uh, last year I gave a, It was one of the things we do. I gave um, um, an online seminar for a a group overseas, uh, two days. Lots Mm -hmm. and lots of material, human factors and safety management, really. And um, it was during lockdown. And afterwards, it all went really quiet. And so I thought, I'm looking for something to do. (laughs) So I thought, I know what, I'm going to paint my house. Okay. So I got my ladder out. And so there I was, up this ladder painting away following the working at height re- height regulations mm-hmm. you bet <laughs> <laughs> of course works, and while it? I was painting away like this your mind wanders and I thought why don't I write up all that stuff as a book because I've always wanted to write a simple book about human factors that anyone could understand yeah. it isn't full of all this stuff about complexity and complex sociotechnical systems and all the models and all that stuff it's something simple why don't I write one about accidents? And I've always wanted to have a go at self-publishing. So anyway, right. when I finished painting the house, I, I thought, I think I'm going to write the book rather than engaging in another dangerous DIY task <laughs> becoming of an accident investigation myself. So <laughs> So, so I, I just sat down, I got all the material and updated it, wrote the book. And I had some familiarity with Amazon's Kindle direct publishing platform. Right, okay. <clears throat> um, so um um I I got on that and I published it on there. And how that works is it, you actually become a publisher. I'm now a, I'm now a book publisher.
1: Okay. Congratulations.
2: So, thank you. I'm now an author, <laughs> a publisher. And when I bought uh, so I own the copyright to the book, I own all the material. I own the ISB number, ISBN number, which, right. I, which I paid for. So I've got complete control over it. <clears throat> uh, it's all mine. Yeah. Um so, I control the price right it's great. What happens is it's on sale on Amazon, and if someone buys it on some book production factory somewhere, it just gets printed out and posted, you know like amazon Amaz- that's what oh, amazon, right. okay. yeah, that's what Amazon does, yeah, 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 um you know um they don't well all the book publishers nowadays they don't print hundreds of copies of books and then try and sell them it's you know on demand,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah,
2: um. You know, like just in time, you know, and all that stuff. Um, so all those principles apply. So that's how it works. Um, and there are things that I like about self-publishing, but there are drawbacks. Um, one thing, well, as you've gathered, one of the things I really like is that you have all the control. Yes. I mean, it's it's your, baby your baby. It's your baby. I just put the price of the ebook up. Right. Um, um, which I, originally I was selling for $9.99 um thinking that the low price would be compensated for by increased sales like developing countries wouldn't got much money mm-hmm. but people don't like ebooks so
1: but it's interesting isn't difficult. it because I, I was talking to my wife about this about come to chat to you about this and it, i very much like fiction books i like on my on as an ebook um but when it comes to workbooks fact books you know books that you're going to use as a as a reference i much prefer paper books because you can scribble in them you can put your um you know your your tabs in the the most used bits of it and things like that there's something a bit i don't know why it should be different because you can do all that with an ebook but there is just something about for um for this type of stuff to have that that printed version
2: yeah um i think what some people have said to me who use my book is that in 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 their jobs they have it by the side they have it on their desk by their computer so they can look at it while they're working on something but Disadvantage of self-publishing are you don't have an author you don't have a publisher to help you with marketing, particularly in universities. Right. Yeah. You have to do all the marketing yourself. Otherwise, no one's gonna know it exists. On
3: yeah,
1: yeah.
2: yeah. Um the other disadvantage I think is well, that is the main disadvantage. <clears throat> um one of the great things about um like the, the the Amazon platform is that I don't do anything about sales. Or delivery or postage.
3: Yeah.
2: Amazon does all of that. Um uh, there are the other advantage of course is with with um, um, these internet platforms is is the royalties much higher.
3: Okay. So
2: you, you can charge less. Yeah yeah. I think yeah with my book on accident investigation coming out 22 pounds fifty a copy. I think that's a pretty keen price.
3: Mm, absolutely.
2: It's it's not You know, I mean, I reckon if that had gone with a a mainstream publisher, you'd be looking at 35, 40 pounds at least. Yeah. Um, so there are advantages and disadvantages. There's one big disadvantage of going through, um, self-publishing for, in our kind of work. And that is that the Amazon platforms like Amazon are set up to sell to individuals, right? They They don't sell to university libraries. And university libraries don't use them university libraries use um, other companies and these companies provide a platform um, I'm I was fortunate in that my book uh, on accident investigation one well, and the fourth edition of the textbook by the way they're both available on a platform um, by a company called cortex that's okay. that's cortex with a K not a, not a C yeah. and, um, because universities want to do distance learning and students won't be able to access the book you know when they're from anywhere not just when yeah. they're in the university library um so i was fortunate and i got a, an arrangement i got a, 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 an agreement with them to um, um, supply the book to um universities and to give you an idea i think costex has something like two million ebooks
3: wow
1: okay it
2: sells to hundreds of universities all around the world um
1: substantial platform
2: yeah so that's a, a huge distribution network so uh, um, amazon is a great distribution network and a great great um, distributor for um self-published books that are going to individuals mm-hmm. but, yeah. um, you need you, you need more if you want, if you want to write an ergonomics book that's going to sell in universities
1: okay so so what's next then? What is, you've talked about a couple of the books that you've written. What what you're writing about next? What what's the next book to come out?
2: Well, I've got the two these two little articles that I'm writing, mm-hmm. um, and um, in terms of books, nothing at the moment. But we have got um, I've got uh, a, a trip to Singapore at the end of August to do a keynote and a workshop on human factors. An excellent investigation. Okay. Um, and that's probably very largely a result of the the book. That's, I think that's a spinoff of um, publishing the book. Um, yes. Generating, yeah. generating interest in human factors in accident investigation. Um, and then in um, October, I'm going to be talking to uh, one of the high-risk industries in Norway, um, also about human factors in accident investigation um, and how to how to um sort of as it were to institutionalize human factors in your accident investigation process in a large high-risk industry
3: okay
2: um and that's um that'll be very interesting which may lead to um um, some more work and um um, uh, that'd be good and then at the end of august sorry the end of october I've got a Zoom meeting uh, with the Chilean Economic Society because they because last time I was over there, I I I gave them a couple of copies of the, the accident book, and they're actually very interested to know how their ergonomists can get involved in accident investigation in Chile. Wow. Um so that's some things coming up. So when you start publishing these books, things things happen sometimes unexpectedly, stuff comes in. Yeah. Um so
1: I see yourself quite busy then.
2: Well, no, no I'm never really busy, <laughs> optimally loaded in good human factors terms,
1: to as, busy as, as busy as you want to be,
2: yes, op, 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 optimally loaded. That's what i yeah. Um, but no, I, um, um, Taylor and Francis did contact have contacted me about the next edition of the textbook and whether I was interested in, in doing one, mm-hmm. uh, and I said. Basically, not immediately because I don't want to compete against myself. Because the yeah, okay. this one's still selling. Yeah. It's sold over five thousand five hundred copies so far, which is it's not bad, you know. That's um, pretty cool. Well, certainly when, when I consider how long it took me to re- to bring to produce it,
3: um, yeah,
2: and with the royalties that I've got, it's actually um it, it's yeah, it's, it's it's financially worthwhile. So I think the fifth edition be financially worthwhile but i told them that i didn't I, I didn't want to do anything until 2023 so probably sometime in 2003 probably the latter half i'll start with the the book proposal form again <laughs> go, go through all of that you know what's the competitive what are the competitor volumes blah, 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 blah. who's the market uh, you, sometimes you think that like, i well, if you don't if you don't know
3: that's why you Yes. <laughs> why
2: to ask me? But anyway, I'll do all that, and then we'll get stuck in there. Probably that'll be quite a big job, actually. But it'd be fun because there's um, there's loads of interesting new things to write about, aren't mm-hmm. there? In our field, yeah. I mean, I could just see it, You know, artificial intelligence, self-driving cars, exoskeletons, all that stuff. The real challenge there is going to be what? To, what am I going to delete? <clears throat> yes. Yes.
1: do? What what do you lose in order to gain? Yes.
2: Yeah. So um and that's so probably looking at a new edition by around some two thousand twenty-five.
1: Fab. Well which, which is about
2: the lifespan of a textbook, seven or eight years.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the um um I'll I'll put in my pre order now to update my bookshelves. Um, Ooh, I, yeah. it's <laughs> so that's really, really helpful and I think really insightful for um, um anybody who's think, thinking about hey not only about writing their own own textbook and that type of thing because clearly you don't necessarily want the competition, but I guess appreciating the complexity about what goes into the background of what you're doing. But talking about books, we everybody I interview now, I ask a, a final three questions that is the same for everybody and and this one might be a bit of a uh, an easy one to answer for you but um, but what is your go-to book? What is the book that, or a paper that you pick up and use repeatedly as a, almost as a as a core thing?
2: You knew I was going to do this, didn't you?
1: Yes, I knew you got to pick up your own book.
2: Yes. <laughs> there, there are two reasons for that. Yeah. Firstly, because if if I'm writing reports for um, um, uh, someone like the HSIB, um, yeah, or a protocol, and I need a reference for something, I know where to find it in there.
3: Yes. Yeah.
2: You know, so I can just grab That's it, it. You know, rather than sort of going onto Google Scholar and and and. And trying to find a reference inappropriate to back up what i want to say so i know where to find stuff um and the other reason is because obviously it's 750 pages long i can't remember all that <laughs>
1: to keep it with you um so that,
2: that, that, that that's why that's what i um keep i keep um by my laptop for all, all times
1: fair play um if you could, if you could go back and, and speak to a younger, younger version of yourself, a young Bob, um, what advice would you give yourself given Buy what sh- you know
2: now? Mm-hmm. Buy shares in Microsoft and Apple.
1: Oh, fair play, yes. No, that's um Um, yeah, see where that they're at now. That would be um interesting. Um and this is where I, I try and get something for nothing in many ways, um, to get you to do some of my work for me. Um, who would you suggest I interview next on the podcast? Who would you like to? he or me interview?
2: Well, I would think, well, I'll tell you what, um, um, I wouldn't necessarily ask you to interview. um, And that would be any more boring old farts like me. Um, (laughs) I'm I'm being facetious, sorry. But um, what would be interesting, might be interesting, because I've had this experience myself, and it would just be interesting to see what other people think. Try to interview somebody who's worked in academia for say 15 20 years mm-hmm. and has then moved out into a consultancy or into a large organization like Thales or uh, the Rail Accident Investigation Branch or the Marine Accident Investigation Branch mm-hmm. and ask them to <coughs> talk about the, the pros and cons and the experiences of, um, of working life. How does working life differ? okay in those organizations and how does that relate to uh the management structure and the demands that are placed upon you the amount of control you have and all that kind of thing that might be interesting the the other one i think would be really interesting would be anybody who's um and it might not be quite time yet but anybody who's doing a lot of really good research on exoskeletons.
1: Yes, that is definitely seems to be a um um a really fruity topic at the topic at the moment. So um yeah, well,
2: I, was, I was delighted at the at the conference when they had those exoskeletons. I tried some I tried one on and, and had a go with it. Mm. And I was quite impressed.
1: In many ways they weren't I don't know what I expected. I guess I was um thinking that like the them things you have of like the, the film predator and things like that or, or alien but um just the almost the gentle support that they give you um yeah, yeah, was gentle. was really r- was really interesting mm. Um, mm. cool mm. well i shall do that well thank you bob for your insights um into publishing and if anybody's interested in contacting bob then his contact details are on our website at 122podcast.com under under this episode um so yeah thank you bob for your time that's re- that's really really cool um I would like to thank everybody also for listening and and for watching now, because obviously we are on YouTube um, and we look forward to seeing you all on the next episode.
0: Thank you for listening to 1202, the Human Factors Podcast. Podcast. Please do get in touch with your thoughts, questions and comments. You can contact us on social media such as Twitter, LinkedIn and Facebook at 1202 Podcast. See you next time. And remember, it's more than just common sense.